Yes, I can see a straightforward line here between the child's experience of the shelter of the home and of parents, which begins as a kind of emotional and psychic and material sheltering, leading to a relationship to an environment. And it seems to me that, and this would be an everyday experience, that some built environments feel kinder than others or less brutalising. What that would mean, I think, is that they call up in us feelings that are less antagonistic, um, less vengeful, less spiteful, less pissed off. And some environments actually make us feel either in need of more shelter and protection or actually make us feel endangered. And it would seem to me to be a good um, way of putting it this, that some forms of shelter are kinder than others because the word shelter is rhetorically very powerful. It makes you feel that because it's shelter, it must be benign. Whereas, of course, sh a shelter can be a whole range of different kinds of refuge, some kinder than others. Yes, or, or, or to put it slightly differently, that a problem arises, which is that potentially kindness is more promiscuous than sexuality, as in we're moved by more people than we desire. And so I think that there's a tremendous fear attached to one's instinct to be kind to other people. Because, of course, if one acts on one's kindness, one involves oneself in their lives. So it's a big risk. And so that's why I think, and we say this in the book, that people actually feel much happier when they're kinder, but they're much less kind than they want to be. And so the question is, why is our, our kindness inhibited? And the answer is, I think, because it involves us with a great range of other people in unpredictable ways. Yes, well, there are two bits. One is that clearly we're suffering from sort of compassion overload now because there is an excessive demand on our sympathy because we simply know more about more people in the world. That's one bit of it. The other bit of it is that in our actual lived lives, we come across people in all sorts of different kind of ways and relationships and places. And we can't help but be struck by their vulnerabilities and their pleasures. That's what we're most drawn by. But there is a kind of cultural inhibition and a kind of social censorship on how kind we're able to be or how far it's going to go and these are anxieties to do with intimacy fundamentally yes it has a strange political profile i think because clearly no political parties are going to promote unkindness but what does seem to happen is that kindness is paid lip service to but it's covertly undermined because the implication is that if you're too kind, it will in some way weaken your capacity to be a strong competitor. And that if the culture depends upon greed and rivalry, which is not all that it depends upon, then it's no good being kind. You couldn't be a kind boxer. What would you be like? Um, you couldn't be a, a, a kind um, sprinter. I mean, what are you going to do? Defer to the other people? So one of the problems, there are two problems here. One is finding a version of kindness that is actually pragmatically realistic. And the other is being free. And that means, I think, actually being culturally buoyed up, encouraged to be able to be kind. Because it, it, it's misleading to demonise capitalism, I think. 
not because it isn't very bad, because in many ways it is very bad, but it also is the world we're actually living in. So we can't live in some fantasy life in which capitalism is over and we're somewhere else. Living in a capitalist culture, what are the possibilities for kindness? Which are like, what are, it's akin to the question, what are the possibilities for collaboration? And what the book does is it promotes a very incredibly simple idea, which is that kindness derives from the idea that we are of the same kind. So one of the things we share in capitalist culture is a wish not to fail. Let's put it as crudely as that. Well, it seems to me that this is a place where kindness actually has got something to say and to do. Because we, not only could we re-describe certain kind of failures as in fact forms of success, we could also be much kinder to the people who within the system fail. Because what's actually happening, I think, is that the people who are in inverted commas successful in this culture feel very, very bad about it. Now, obviously, they can't afford to say this because, obviously, like alcoholics, everybody's got to drink. So everybody who's successful has got to make everybody feel that success is a thing to have and to be. Actually, everybody knows in capitalist culture that if somebody's profiting, somebody's being exploited. It's not a secret. Everybody knows this. But what is a secret is how this is felt emotionally because people actually feel very, 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 very bad about being greedy. And the privileged actually... Um, show up the underprivileged. They expose the scale of underprivilege. And so if you live in a culture which actually covertly promotes envy, it's going to be very difficult for people to be kind. People are only happy when they are kind. This is a big problem. The, the solution here is that an ethos needs to be created in which... Um, a good, eloquent, powerful, attractive case is made for kindness. Not a sort of we must try harder case, because this is not interesting. It's not exciting. It's not sexually exciting to make an effort. What we say in the book, which I think is true, is that it's a desire that is inhibited. It's not a failure of effort or self-discipline on our part. It's actually about releasing something that already exists, not about foisting something on people. So the book is not saying, as every body would say, it's a duty to be kind. We're saying it is a pleasure to be kind. This is not a way of tricking people to be kind, but it's actually something I think that most people know, which is when they're kinder, they're happier, and when people are kind to them, they're happy. It's not a great mystery. We could distinguish between shelter for and shelter from. And I think people can be sheltering from all sorts of things they may actually need to be able to confront. And they might seek shelter for certain kinds of vulnerabilities they need to acknowledge. I do think that there is something peculiarly divisive about building buildings that bring out the worst in people, that actually call up a disregard for the environment. Because it's quite clear that certain form, forms of, of public housing, at least in this culture, do nothing to invite people to have some kind of regard or care for the environment. Actually, they're an invitation to disregard and brutalise it. So this is a covert attempt to bring out the worst in people, I think, while telling yourself a public story that you're doing them an awful lot of good. So I think people need to give interesting accounts of what people need to shelter for and shelter from, and not allow the buildings, a bit like the idea that a family is a haven in a heartless world, it would be better to create a more heartfelt world, 
rather than create better families as havens. By the same token, I think, there should be an attempt to create a better shared environment rather than environments that are seen to be places you can escape from the world into. No, not necessarily, because I think that the project of creating more civil space is actually reactive to the acknowledgement that there is no civil space anymore. That it's not created literally by just producing civil spaces, seems to me. It's created by an awful lot of things of which creating civil spaces could be one. It's got to be important that there is property that is owned by everybody. Both That is a symbolic point as well as a real one. The risk is that the that the society feels all it's got to do is produce a communal space and there'll be a community. Well, there won't be. That this space is integral, but it doesn't actually constitute the thing it's looking for. I think this is an important point because there's an important relationship between trauma and kindness. Traumas don't change people, they sort of expose people, they reveal things that are latent in people. After wars or mass immigrations, or indeed economic declines, it's as though it can go one of two ways. It can either make people more ruthless and scavenging and brutal, or it's the opportunity for people to be kinder and more collaborative and more communal. I think that after a trauma, in the first instance, when people are in shock, they want to they, they want to, as it were, feel safe. The next stage is a more interesting one. And that might be a, an interesting stage architecturally too, when people move from the need for, um, not exactly invulnerability, but a refuge from vulnerability, into the possibility of confronting a world, or reconfronting a world, in the light of the things that they've suffered. And that's when I think the possibility of, as it were, kind shelter or kind architecture might be very, very important. Because it's a statement about how um, inviting and how possible it is to live in the world, or how much the world is actually a place we need to hide from. And that seems to be one of the issues here. Now, kindness is communal, it's social, you can't be kind by yourself. It involves other people. So all social practices must have kindness somewhere in them. And we're not only talking about sort of nurses and school teachers, we must also be talking about architectures and architects and painters and so on. One of the things we've done with kindness is delegated either to women or to certain deities. In other words, if you think of this psychologically, it's as though the parts of ourselves we're most troubled by, we're going to distribute elsewhere. And kindness, people's kindness perturbs them. And so I think it's been feminized as a way of ridding ourselves of it, rather than as it were cultivating. Because in my preferred world, I think, primary school teachers and nurses would be the most highly paid professions. We really need, I mean, the real question is, who looks after us when we're ill? That seems to me the fundamental social question. The second one is, who teaches us and how are we taught and what are we taught to be? Kindness would seem to me to be integral to all these activities. One of the questions our book raises is, again, it's a very simple observation, which is that parenting depends upon kindness. Literally, Children can't grow up unless they are kindly treated. And yet kindness dissipates as people get older. The world, whatever the world is, is a much less kind place than the family. Is that a necessity? 
Or is it, for example, possible, not that the world can be like a family in some sentimental, schlocky way, but that there could be appropriately adult forms of kindness that are not merely replications of parents and children? Everything could do with being feminized, it seems to me, but, but also masculinized. It's not that... I mean, I'm sure, I don't know enough about architecture, but I would imagine it's true that it's got, it would have to be better if there were more women in it, because anything that excludes one of the two sexes is bad, seems to me. Um, good for some things, but bad for others. So that there are obviously going to be, as well, losses and gains. But it does seem to me that um, the better model would be uh, one that could take into account the fact that we were all babies and children. It seems incredibly sort of banal in a way, but it does seem to be important that if there isn't sufficient continuity between childhood and adulthood, people feel radically estranged from themselves. So it's as though there are two species, children and adults, whereas in fact there's one species, and I think we depend upon architecture to hold those continuities for us. Yes, kindness is innate in us because we are group animals. We can only live because we are interdependent on each other. As we are dependent creatures, we have to be kind creatures. That doesn't mean we are. that's all we are. It's very important that we, we don't produce a sentimentalized, unrealistic picture here because we're ambivalent animals. We're really kind and really cruel. But when, for example, we say things like, well, children must be Sufis because they're going to be incredibly horrible to each other, potentially. What we don't know about is how kind they are to each other when we're not with them. It's a completely invisible community, the community of the way in which children can also be kind to each other. So what has to be said is that we are innately kind and cruel. And the project is not to be one or other, but to be free to be both, and for cruelty and kindness to interanimate each other. or sentimentalized. The worst thing that happened to kindness is its sentimentalization. It's a robust, um, ruthless virtue, not a kind of um, corruption of the soul. Self-interest is a difficult phrase because it implies the self is already known and its interests are already in place. What kindness does is it compels people to involve themselves with each other so that they discover things as well as, um, con you know, uh, confirm things. So just as um, we don't have relationships in order to meet needs, we have relationships in order to discover what our needs might be. Similarly, kindness is something of a, um, an exploration of what it might be to be kind. I can't I can't say to you, I'm going to tell you a good joke. I can tell you a joke and you'll tell me whether it's good. By the same token, I can't do something to you that is a kind act. You will have to tell me whether you experienced it as a kind act, whatever my intentions were. So it's something that comes out of a conversation. They're not pre-known facts. They emerge. What is kind emerges between people. It's not pre-scripted. There seems to me there's one fundamental thing here, which is that mothers' bodies are soft and yielding and buildings have to be hard. Buildings are always going to be hard objects. Given they are hard objects, what can they be as well? 
In other words, what's the architectural equivalent of something that is more yielding, more responsive, um, and not only simply something that, as it were, resists you and pushes you away? Given a building has to be hard, what are the ways in which it can be soft, metaphorically? That's what we would look to architects for, would be precisely those configurations that confer those feelings upon us or call them up in us. One of the things about kindness is there are no experts on it. It's not a special subject. It's actually often self-evident what it is to be kind in any given situation, which makes it more, not less interesting, the fact that we are less kind than we want to be. One of the opportunities the financial crisis provides is it allows us to wonder whether there might be more things to want than lots of money. So there is the opportunity here for a reconsideration of the things that matter most to us. One of the things that might, might matter most to us is each other. That's what kindness is about, how much we matter to each other.